Right, well, good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to the LSE. I'm Simon Glendening, and I'm the director of the Forum for European Philosophy. And I'm delighted to welcome you to this experiment. Um, our title tonight is <laughs> Chaos, Unpredictability, and the Evolution of Mathematical Ideas. That looks like core material for the Forum for European Philosophy, I think. <laughs> so how on earth did the Forum for European Philosophy come to be doing this? Um, well, sometime over last summer, there was an announcement on the internet of the winner of this year's James T. Cushing Memorial Prize in History and Philosophy of Physics. And it turned out to be Charlotte Werndl, who's lecturer in philosophy here at the LSE, for her paper, which is called What are the New Implications of Chaos for Unpredictability? What are the implications? Indeed, butterflies and fractals. Now that's the end of my understanding of any of this, and my normal role here has been to try to supply a kind of slightly knowledgeable but not overwhelmingly so uh, counterpart to our dialogists, and um, I simply couldn't do it. This Glendinning can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> but I know a Glendinning who can. <laughs> We are connected by a cosmic accident, which is more to do with birds and bees than butterflies and fractals, of the uh, property of sharing the same parents. Um, <laughs> um, the resemblance ends there, <laughs> at least as far as maths goes. I had glimpses of the mountain as a very poor A-level student, student um, and this one has a robust embrace of the whole mountain. He's a professor of applied mathematics at the University of Manchester, and he was known already by Charlotte, at least as the author of Stability, Instability, and Chaos. And I remember when that came out, asking him, thinking, oh my god, I could might find out what he does. I said, what's that about? And he said, well, it's mainly about nonlinear dynamical systems. <laughs> Butterflies and fractals. <laughs> and I think I'm sort of here, to, in a way, to defend the honour of some of you uh, who will be in my position of having only had glimpses of the mountain. Um, but hopefully, through the evening, they're going to uh, shed a bit more light on it for us. Um, they know that they're not speaking to a specialist audience, so um, we'll see how they get on with that challenge. Um, but so we have uh, Paul Glendening and Charles Bundle, and they're going to talk for with each other. They'll have little opportunity to speak for themselves, um, but they'll speak for uh, about an hour, and then we'll have an opportunity about half an hour for uh, questions and contributions from you lot. So. Uh, I'll hand over to the other Glendinning. <laughs> I should say I'm the older one. <laughs> Just in case it wasn't clear. Um, so um, it's a great pleasure to be here um, to talk about um, chaos, which has been something that I've been working on for really quite a long time, but also to um, talk with Charlotte about some of the implications of chaos, which I think are really interesting. Um, and so I hope that we can at least communicate some of the issues and the questions and the sort of problems that one might think about, both in terms of the mathematics, but also in terms of what that means and what the implications are. 
Okay, so if you were watching the stream and the sort of slugs that were going around, something I call Sparrow's Slugs. So a friend of mine, um, when I was doing my PhD, Colin Sparrow, um, so when I was, I, did, was, I guess I finished my PhD in 1985, so um, this was the early days of chaos in many ways, and Colin has this really nice way of demonstrating what's called sensitive dependence on initial conditions. So what you had there was three slugs, and I'll tell you what slugs mean in a minute, but for the point, purpose of this, non-technical, so slugs is as technical as I'm going to get. Why do we always do? So we've got butterflies, slugs. No, no idea. You, you introduced birds. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so those slugs represented three things starting very, very close together. And what you saw was, if you weren't concentrating at one stage, they were all together, and the next time you looked, they were all separated. And that's um, one of the things, I mean, that is part of what we're going to talk about today. Okay, so the thing to think about is, we're going to think about models, mathematical models of <coughs> the world, of interactions, of anything you want to think about, mathematical models, which are deterministic. Okay, so if you, if you know exactly where you start, that defines precisely how <laughs> some sort of time evolution is going to go. So that's the thing to bear in mind. Underneath everything that we're talking about is determinism. There is nothing sort of vague or where it can choose to go one way or another. It's a purely deterministic system. What happens is determined by how you set things up and the rules of evolution. Once you've chosen those, it just flows. So I want to start with just three examples, which are sort of, if you like, canonical examples of the sort of properties and things that um, we think about. So the example that we had with the slugs was the Lorentz equations. And this is a deterministic system. It has continuous time and continuous space. So your variables are varying in time, continuously, and in space. It's given by a differential equation, but you don't really have to know that. The important thing is that things are varying smoothly. And I've done a list of properties. My daughters um, do this thing called top trumps. Knows <laughs> top trumps. Um, but you, you have this list of properties, and then you have to bet against each other about whether you get you score higher in one than another. So what I've done is I've listed four properties. Now the Lorentz equations were developed by Ed Lorentz in about in, and actually Salzman as well in the early 1960s as a very much oversimplified model of the atmosphere, the um, weather. And what Ed Lorentz noticed was that it, it was very early days of um, computing. And you didn't go on and just fire up your laptop. You carefully brought these sort of punch cards. And you took these punch cards to somebody else. And then you went away. And then you came back. And they told you that your program didn't work. <laughs> so you then took your punch cards and <coughs> worked out where they can go. And then, so you can repeat that a few times. And after a while, you get a computer with some sort of output. So he got some numbers on one of the runs of his model of the atmosphere. And he, went, he thought he'd better check something, so he went back. And he got something completely different. And what had happened was, I can't remember exactly where, but one of the, he, he made a mistake in the second of where he'd started things off, at about the third or fourth decimal place. But that had been enough to, for the two things to diverge. So he got very excited. We know the weather's hard. It's hard to predict. So he got very excited about this. So this SDIC is sensitive dependence on initial conditions. The idea that if you start things very, very close, 
they can still end up significantly separated. Probability measure, well, that's a much more sophisticated idea, but it's the idea that somehow there's a statistical property. This is a deterministic system that has certain sort of regular um, probabilistic measures that you can assign to things. So if you look at a bit, a bit here, there will be a well-defined number of times that you come back into that region as a proportion of the total amount of time. So there's actually a probabilistic um, way of talking about these things. And associated with these two things, you can sort of talk about mixing, which is a way that the probability measure, um, the probabilities um, react. And I think um, Charles can say a bit more about that. And strange attractors, and I'll talk a bit more about strange attractors. That was one of the buzzwords of the 1980s. Um, there. But one thing I do want you to notice is when these things were actually proved. Okay, this model was around since the 1960s, early 1960s. It was big in the 1970s. It was the canonical example in the 1970s. But we only recently actually got proofs for these things. Logistic equation is another nice one. This time it's deterministic, of course. Discrete time, continuous space. So the idea here is, I've actually written the equations down here. You start with some value of x. You plug it into this equation, 4 times x times 1 minus x. You get a new x, and you generate a sequence of values of x. And if you start between 0 and 1, you stay between 0 and 1. And what I've done here is I've plotted a histogram of how I split this up into the interval 0 1 into 40 boxes. And I just measured how many times the 100,000 points iterated using this system actually sit in there. And what you can see is this histogram has a very regular pattern. And in fact, it converges to something completely nice and understood. So the, again, this is talking about probabilities here. The probability of being anywhere settles down to something nice. So although we've got complete determinism, we've got a sort of statistical probabilistic way of talking about it. It has sensitive dependence as well. It has this probabilistic measure. It has mixing. And it, has, it has a strange attractor. No, it's not a strange attractor, <coughs> although it's a chaotic attractor. It's not strange because the attractor is the whole of the unit interval, which isn't strange at all. It's just a line. So, and you can also do great things with playing out about with messing around with changing that four to another number, which I'm not going to talk about. <laughs> Third example, Henelman. So the idea here was to take something like the um, difference equation we had before, but make it two-dimensional and crucially for what people were interested, make it possible to go backwards in time as well. The logistic map you can only go forwards in time deterministically. This map you can go backwards in time, and you throwing some parameters, and this is the sort of thing you see. You see you've got two, parameters, two variables, x and y, and if you plot the values for initial conditions, you get some complicated sort of curve like this, and if you look at what happens in the structure, it gets the structure on all scales. So this is what's called fractals, this is the sort of arbitrary fine structure, um, intricate, Peter Smith had a wonderful word for it. What was it infinite, infinitely intricate? It's a lovely, lovely in, the infinitely intricate. So at every length scale, you see structure, a new structure emerging as you, as you go to final form of length scale. What about these properties? Sensitive dependence? Not known. Probability measure? Not known. Mixing? Not known. Strange attractor? Not known. Okay, this example has been one of the canonical examples of chaos since 1976. And we still don't know whether any of these things are true. What we do know 
is that if I've got these two parameters A and B, and these are the canonical values that people used, or Michel Hennon used, um, what we do know is that there exist nearby parameters where strange attractors and mixing and all those sorts of things do, do exist. We don't know what they are. So we have, if you like, an implicit thing that says um, chaos, um, strength, sensitive dependence, all these properties exist in this model, but we don't know what parameter values. Right, so there's three canonical examples. Let's see if it's Right, My, so this is, number one is, is where I stand, really. What am I trying to do? Why did I get interested in this stuff? Because if you make mathematical, if you're a mathematician making mathematical models, you want to use them. You don't want to say, here's some equations, and that's the end of the world, you know, the end of your involvement. You want to say, and this tells you that they, the system will do the x, y, z. Okay, you don't want to just say, here's a formalism. I mean, some people do, I don't. Okay, so you want to say, here's a, form, here's a model, and it tells you something about the, thing, the way you're thinking about things. So, for example, the, one of the important things about chaos is that even if you don't want things to settle down into regular behavior, you don't need to add noise. So you're, when you're modeling, should I add noise? Is noise, external noise, um, important? Well, I can get things that are not um, periodic, not simple, even if I, without adding noise. Is the behavior robust? That's very important. I'm not going to talk about it. This is, if you change, you never know your model exactly. Everything is an approximation. So if everything depends absolutely, crucially, on the parameters that you're looking at, then you may as well forget it because you're talking about that model and if you tweak things just a little bit, it does something different. Well, that's not very good. Applications. I think this thing is not stressed nearly enough. Physics is based on repeatability. Okay? The idea is that you take an experiment, you redo it, somebody else goes away and redoes it, and they get the same result. So the thing about chaos is it makes you think about what repeatability means. Does it mean that everything has to be exactly the same? Well, no, it doesn't. But so chaos makes you think about what repeatability is and predictability as well. And there are definitions, which is another thing that we'll talk about a bit later. Uh, and also now there are infinitely many approaches. You've got pure mathematics, you've got applied mathematics, you've got physics, you've got biology, you've got um, materials, you've got all these people who are using these ideas. When I started, it was fantastic that you go to a chaos conference and you get all these ideas thrown at you. Now you go to a chaos conference and complexity or whatever it's called now, um, and you get you know you get one you tend to get just one aspect. So it's become very much specialised. So I just very quickly want to give you a couple of things that, that, that I think in terms of why chaos, what does it get you? Well, one of the things in the 1980s, which I thought was really nice, was that we had people coming through and saying, look, I did this experiment 10 years ago, and I just had to put it in the garage. You know, I couldn't get it to work. And why couldn't I get it to work? Because every time I did it, I got a different answer. But now I know what, and so I assumed that I hadn't set the table up right, or there was some effort, some effect that I wasn't understanding. Okay. And now that you, people are started telling me about chaos, I understand completely what's going on. I know why it's not um, doing exactly the same, but I know now in, enough about the other structures involved that I can interpret the experiment sensibly in terms of chaos. And I mean, we haven't gone into the details of how you do that, but there are fairly well-established ways of looking at these things. 
which allow you to interpret what you're seeing, even though you're not seeing the same thing. I think that's really important. But it also changes the way we do things like weather prediction. Instead of just doing the best, doing our model, and that's it, what you do is you do, and, and you may have picked this up, they, do, they take um, where they are, they take several different um, initial conditions, see where those go, see where those start diverging. If they all do the same thing after three days, then they can be fairly confident that after three days they've got a good weather prediction. There was a phase where they, where even on the television they'd say things like, there is a 60% chance of rain. What they meant by that was they took a bunch of initial conditions close to where we were, evolved in two days, and 60% of those initial conditions had rain and 40% didn't. So that was the way they started to incorporate this idea of not not having this uniform predictability into it. Um, it's particular mechanics and statistics biology. So what's happening now? Now, so chaos is interesting, but chaos is part of something else. It's part of a bigger thing that you might call dynamical systems. Anything that moves. The mathematical study of things that move. Okay. First of all, it's got much more specialised. But now we're looking at much more distributed things. So these two pictures are networks. This is... Um, each node here, there's dots that you can see, represent genes or gene expressions in a yeast um, cell. And, um, and the connections show, show whether these things can um, interact together, whether there are chemical interactions between them. So this, if you like, is a, is a diagram of chemical pathways. This is a diagram of the internet. So each bright spot here, each star, is um, a workstation sort of idea. And the connections are showing how those things are connected up. And so there's a lot of work now on understanding how networks work. So you've got networks giving you structure, and then you've got dynamics on that network. Um, there's a, almost everything that we were doing in the 1980s was smooth. Okay, there were nice continuous functions of things that we could write down. In quite a lot of engineering problems, life becomes non-smooth. If you imagine um, a conveyor belt going this way, and a slab on it attached to a wall here, as it, or attached by a, a spring, it sort of goes with the, with the, gets extended, 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 and then it starts slipping back. And you get a rock, you don't get a smooth, oh, I'm going to go back. You get, okay, and that's really interesting, but it's non smooth. <laughs> Distributed systems, so the idea is um, stupid bots, robots, cheap, stupid robots, but they've got to be able to communicate enough. The idea is that you do things that are cheap enough that you can put lots down <coughs> so you can detect things like forest fires, that sort of thing. Um, evolving adaptive ne networks, and that's in social sciences everywhere. So if I did a crystal ball now, where's chaos gone where's, and where's chaos going? I think one of the really interesting things that is starting to emerge now is how chaos and noise interact. So noise, is, if you like, is the truly random, and chaos is the deterministic. Now, you have quite a lot of models now which are mixed. Okay. And so you can ask then, what phenomena are noise generated? Okay, what, what needs noise and why? I mean, what, what's the source of noise? What's enhanced by noise? What's underlying deterministic but robust noise so the noise doesn't matter so much? So that all these sorts of questions and developing methodologies to determine where you are. And in neuroscience, I mean, there are some fascinating things in neuroscience about... Um, how you, where all the models now seem, of various brain activity seem to need a background activity. But if that background activity was actually going to be part of your model, 
how do you stop it synchronizing? How do you stop it sort of doing something which isn't a background activity? So um, this, this thing now of mixing the chaotic deterministic randomness with what you might call real randomness, I think is one of the really key key things. And that's where I'm going to stop. But what, what I hope I've done is given you a sort of very, very quick overview of what chaos is about, and also the sort of thing it's, it's evolved into, because chaos is very much really the 1980s, 1990s, and, and things are moving on in terms of both the technicality of what we can do, but also the, the types of questions that we're trying to ask. So I'll pause there and try to get, do you want to get your things Christmas Day. Um, it's a simple deterministic system. 
and contrast this with an indeterministic system. So an example, just to give an example, is something like, suppose a gambler agrees to the following deal that you say the, the co coin will be tossed on Christmas Day, and if heads comes up, then the gambler will uh, win 100 pounds. If um, tail comes up, then she will lose 100 pounds. And then you, if you ask me, can you please tell me whether the gambler will be rich or poor on Christmas Day, then I can just tell you, I, I really don't know. I, I can't tell you. And so that's the contrast between a deterministic system and an indeterministic one. So for the deterministic system, you, see you, you can make predictions because we have deterministic laws to rely on. For the indeterministic system, well, it's somewhat clear there's an element of chance, so it's not that surprising that I can't make predictions. So this is this neat contrast. What's now, I think, interesting about chaos is that so it doesn't fit um, into this nice scheme. In the sense that when chaotic models, like the weather models, they are deterministic, like the planetary system. <laughs> but however, they are in a way unpredictable, um, in it like um, the system with the gambler. So, you know, even if you tell me, even if I know the relevant features about the weather on 1st December, even if I know that, I mean, there will be no way for me to predict um, the weather on Christmas Day. So I know that even though there is, there's a deterministic, so even if there's a deterministic link, from the weather on 1st December, all these links, um, deterministic link to the weather on Christmas Day, I won't be able to predict the weather on Christmas Day. So that's interesting about chaos, because it shows that um, this neat classification into the simple deterministic and the complex indeterministic systems doesn't hold true. So, so why, um, why is it that chaotic systems are unpredictable in that way? So let me explain a bit more. So. So one crucial thing to realize is, of course, is that we, you know, our measurements, we have only finite precision. So we can only measure with finite precision. And this means that, you know, if I know the state of the system, of the weather system on 1st December, I can still make relatively good predictions about the weather, maybe about 2nd December, some halfway good prediction about 3rd and 4th December. But when it comes to Christmas Day, you know, the precision of my knowledge of the current weather is just not enough to really give you precise predictions about the weather on Christmas Day. So you might say fair enough, but isn't that also the case for the planetary system, the very, very simple system um, we started with? And of course, in, in a way it is, in the sense that, of course, also for the planet, you know, I also have only finite measurement precision, can only measure the position, velocity of the planet with finite um, precision. But I mean, the, the real difference so, between this planetary system and the chaotic system is, I mean, for the planetary systems, these finite measurements still constrain you know, what will happen, strongly constrain what will happen on Christmas Day. <laughs> That's why I can give you the predictions. So of course, I can only give you an approximate, a very approximate predict, uh, prediction about the position of the planets. But still, this approximate prediction is very good. Why? Because my finite precision measurements strongly constrain um, the future evolution of the planet. And that's not the case for chaotic systems. So for chaotic systems, um, if, as I said, if I know that weather on 1st December, it just doesn't strongly constrain, indeed it doesn't constrain at all where the weather will be on Christmas Day. So that's the difference, that for the simple deterministic system, you know, they strongly constrain the future evolution, the outcomes of the future, and 
um, for chaotic systems. There is just no such constraint. Okay, um, so this this was really just to introduce the idea there's something special about chaos and unpredictability. So chaotic systems show a special kind of unpredictability which other deterministic systems like the planetary systems don't show. And so this is, I mean, my paper was about exactly that question, you know, what is the special kind of unpredictability shown by chaotic systems, which is, which is not shown by other deterministic systems. And although it was always, of course, some would believe that, you know, chaotic systems, there's something special about unpredictability. I think his previous attempt to fleshing out was what this special kind of unpredictability is, didn't really fit the bill. So, so let me now just, I mean, explain this answer I put forward in the paper in, in more detail. I mean, you already know the basic idea is just this idea that, you know, my present knowledge doesn't constrain the future um, state of the system. And here's this, I mean, here's really the point where this, I mean, Paul was talking about that, um, this metaphor of mixing comes in. So this we see here. So, so it's very nice because it's just a glass of water and a drop of ink, so it's very simple. So um, basically what we have here, this just no. is. <laughs> 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 Never mind. <laughs> okay. So, okay, good. So what we have here, I mean, this just illustrates mixing. And let's just start with the, really the metaphor. You have a glass of water, you drop in, uh, you drop in um, a small amount of ink. And then of course, I mean, if it's just one second from where, where you dropped in the ink. And of course, the ink is still concentrated at the point of impact. That's why it looks like that, concentrated at the point of impact. But the point is, if you wait longer, so let's wait for a couple of minutes, what happens? We all know that. And what happens phenomenologically, then we have that the ink uniformly dissolved in the water. And so any molecule, you know, we, dropped, we dropped in here a small amount of ink consisting of many small molecules. And here, actually, these molecules then can be anywhere in the glass because it has just uniformly dissolved um, in water. And I mean, this is this nice metaphor of mixing, which is at least reasonably simple, I think. You can then, I mean, this metaphor of mixing, you can really formalize that mathematically, and that's more complex. But, um, and with this, you can arrive at one possible characterization of chaos. And this then actually gives you, um, this actually then connects to unpredictability and let me explain how. So they, they so basically you can really one can really illustrate it with the diagram here. So this small amount of ink that you put in the glass <coughs> corresponds to really the initial measurement, you know, like what they know about the weather on first December. I mean more precisely speaking, these are just all possible initial conditions which are consistent with my measurement. And so so if I just, you know, wait one day, two days with the weather, so for very short time, uh, short term predictions, I can make those because as I said, a second from now, the ink will still be concentrated at the point of impact. So I can make short term predictions. But, um, so for chaotic systems, I can make short term predictions, but what I can't make are these more long term predictions. Because as you see here, I mean, here, the, the, the state of the system is still strongly constrained, but here it isn't constrained at all. So the state of the system can be anywhere in the glass. The glass corresponds to all possible states, so the weather can be just anything. And that's, that's this idea which you can express with mixing that 
um, the present state, the present knowledge you have about initial conditions just doesn't help you, doesn't help you at all um, to make, to predict the outcome of the system in the future, to predict the weather um, on Christmas days. And that's something um, which is, I think, really special about these chaotic systems and which other deterministic systems like <laughs> the planetary system are introduced at the very beginning. They don't share. So this is something which makes chaos in a way special. Okay, good. Okay. So now we do it out. Oh, we're supposed to <laughs> 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 so we, we are now moving to a different phase of this. But um, what we thought we'd do is that I, I'd ask Charlotte some questions about how I was seeing her things and the things that she was writing about. And you've got to bear in mind at the moment that I'm a mathematician. Yeah. I'm not a philosopher. So some of my questions are likely to be hopelessly naive. Although I do think that sometimes naive questions are very good. Sometimes they're very bad. So it's sort of hidden history in there. Um, the first, uh, um, sorry, just one other thing is you are going to have your opportunity later. So sort of if, I hope one of the things is that you know, us talking will actually make you think about things as well. Do you think you could sit further apart so you have to shout at one another? Oh. <laughs> 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 Ow. <laughs> um, hang on. We'll try shouting at each other. We'll shout, shout at you. So, so do tell us. Yeah, uh, do tell us if, if, if our voices start dropping. Um, so the first thing that I felt reading this um, paper and some of Charles' other things was this question about why chaos. I mean, Charles not the first philosopher I've met interested in chaos. So that I think there's a general question before we get into the specifics of what it is about chaos that seems to interest people outside the mathematics physics community. Sure, yes. I mean, there are a couple of reasons, I think. I mean, one main reason is really that the chaos is interesting because it links to topics which have always been of core philosophical interest. You know, if you think of, I mean, especially the measure theoretical approach, you think of you know, unpredictability, randomness. You know, philosophers really just want to say, what is randomness? Um, determinism and indeterminism, you know, classical topics, and deterministic modeling and indeterministic modeling. And, of course, probability. Probability is a very exciting philosophical. And, and you find all that there, and not only do you find it, but, I mean, when you study chaos theory, you seem to get, at least for some topics, you get a new perspective and new questions that come up. And so it's not, you know, um, other areas of mathematics don't always give you that. But here you have this classical philosophy of science, and as you metaphysics question, which they just naturally arise. And another thing, of course, I mean, philosophers, you know, this chaos theory has always often been called a chaos theory revolution, you know, a major change in thinking. And whenever something like that arises, I mean, philosophers at least want to know, you know, what, what is this, and is it true that it has been a major change in thinking? Is it really a scientific revolution, what happened? And that's enough, I think, to get many of us interested. Right, so when is that about our knowledge, and when is that intrinsic to the, to the topic? I mean, mm -hmm. is it that more people suddenly understand that this is possible? I mean, I'm sure that Poincaré mm. would not have been surprised by chaos. Mm. No, I mean, I think so I mean that, that, that this, this is something about um, 
chaos theory or chaos research in general. I mean, when it, when it rose in the 1960s and 70s and so on, of course, it was not the first time that people have studied things like this, but it was the first time in a way that people have systematically studied it, I mean, all across different fields and so on. And of course, in principle, philosophers could have been interested in that earlier, but I mean, for them, it was easy, not so easy to get to know these issues. And once there was so much research on these issues, natural for them to take it up. <laughs> so one of the things, um, I'm not sure whether it's what the right word is, one of the things I found striking was you seem to be striving to get a unified, a single unified sort of picture of what made chaos different or interesting. And I suppose as someone who uses chaos, I would avoid defining chaos like a plague. I mean, there are so many different, subtly different ways of looking at these things where, with subtle intersections or, or um, inclusions. But what one tends to do is say, within this set of problems, this is sort of the natural definition to use. And so I'll use that there. And then in this, I'll use that. And here, well, actually, there's a really interesting thing going on because both are obviously important and they're different. So. It felt to me that you were going for for one thing. So can you say something about Sure. I mean, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't intend in my paper to go for one formal definition. Mm. And let me explain it. I do write it in my paper, maybe not as explicit as, um, you know, for someone with the background I should have done. So my, I know that mathematicians don't like to define them I in chaos. They don't like to define fractals, which is at first surprising because I think that mathematicians don't they want to define their notions, but no, they don't want. No, that's not true. It's just that um, Hausdorff, the proper definition of fractal is through Hausdorff dimension. Now, if you always use Hausdorff dimension, you'd almost never be able to do anything. Yeah, but so you find you find books like the famous book of um, about of fractals where they explicitly find say things like, you know, it's better not to find not to define yeah. fractal. Because Is that about Mandelbrot? No, um, so. that's uh, Oh no, okay, okay, so yes, so So and I think you find yeah, sometimes yeah, yeah, the no, same no, with chaos, but I mean, no, what I mean true. by that is yeah. that it's sometimes regarded more as a pre-formal idea. And of course, it doesn't mean that you can't have formal yeah. definitions, yeah. because sure, you should have your, even your spectrum of definitions and whatever. But, and you do find that, that with, these with these ideas like chaos, which is broad, that people tend, some mathematicians tend to say, let's leave it at the yeah. pre-formal level. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and it does not mean that they are stopping. I mean, they yeah, work right. with their very precise notions and characterizations. Yeah, yeah, they just but, but they don't call it chaos. Yeah. They just give it another name, definition one or something like that. <laughs> okay. And so I was quite aware of that. That's why in my paper I tend to speak about chaos as a pre-formal notion. You know. And um, the trouble with this is, as you say, in specific, in specific context, then you if you just say it's pre-formal, often you can't do much with it. And the same really um, here. So, I mean, I said it's a pre-formal notion, but in some contexts we still, I think, want to find a formal definition. And so then I developed these two criteria that the formal definition should have, um, should capture our pre-formal intuitions and should be extensionally correct. And then say we can find formal definitions of this pre-formal idea, which are um, useful in certain contexts. And mixing is useful in this context. To answer these questions, I mean, to answer the question, you know, what is what is special about 
unpredictability, but I did I never meant to say that this is you know the single only one definition of yeah, you were saying it was sort of somehow core <laughs> so so in mathematics very often there's a, a difference between topology and measure. So probability, if you like, on the one hand, and analysis on the other hand. And those two can give you quite different views of the world. So you've got two different spectacles. Mm. And if you look at one one thing through topological spectacles, you see one thing. If you see it through measure, you see another. And so you've sort of shifted, which I think is interesting, away from the topological onto the measure. I mean, the, the reason for this being, I think, that if you try to understand unpredictability, sometimes the measure theoretic perspective just simply is more powerful. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, the perspectives are topological perspectives, rich perspective, measure theoretic one is a rich perspective, which one is better depends on the context. But for and answering some of these questions related to unpredictability or randomness, I think the measure theoretic one um, is more powerful. That's why I came up with that one. So, so I had a question about your. Um your, what you decided was going to be an adequate definition. Mm -hmm. So this was, I mean, one of them made sense. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Sorry, that's a leading <laughs> So one of them I understood completely, um, which was it, you wanted to capture the pre-formal idea. Mm -hmm. The other one, I, I sort of found, as a mathematician, I found huge trouble in, in deciding how you were going to tick that box, because you said it had to be uncontroversial. And that seems to me to suggest that somebody is sitting up there and saying, oh, yes, uncontroversial, uncontroversial, oh, controversial, <laughs> uncontroversial. And so who is the, who is the, what is the, whatever it is, the God will be... God is doing that. God is doing that. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I mean, no, no, I mean, I think the idea here really is that, you know, the I mean, it's really, of course, you shouldn't ask a random person on the street. It's those who've really studied more this pre-formal notion of, of chaos and have obtained an understanding of this pre-formal notion of chaos. And I think, I mean, when you look at the literature, it's fairly obvious in a way that there is agreement about you know, things like the standard examples you present, logistic equation, Lorentz attractor, I mean, Hannon map, although we, for certain parameters, we still don't know what's actually going on. And tent map and so on. There's a, just a long list of systems where I think having, I mean, I can't really think of anyone who has understood this preformal notion of chaos who would say that's not chaos. And there is this other class of systems like this two planets moving around the sun, which I used in the presentation, which are just clearly everyone will say this has nothing to do with chaos. And of course, there's some, sometimes there can be controversy about special cases, but if there are, I would put them in the borderline. Right, so region. And of course, you're happy to have a borderline region. I'm happy to have a borderline, very much. Yeah. That's How why I think, <laughs> I think we, don't, we still don't know enough yeah. about the mathematics to say how big it is. So, um, and, and that's, oh. that's the idea. It's fine <coughs> to have borderline cases because I think that's part of this preformal notion. Yeah. And yeah, so it's fine to have borderline cases. The other thing, um, so we're going to talk maybe a bit about statistical probability, but in a sense. Mm Pre-formal idea of probability is 
I have 10 possible outcomes. They're all equal, so it's a 10. Each one has probability of 10. Okay. But what does that actually mean for any individual occurrence? How can I check that? If I only have one occurrence of it, so they're all sort. I mean, that's a very naive oh, view of it, but, but I mean, probability is not easy to pin down. So I guess. Sure. I mean, else um, yes, I mean that. I, mean, I, I think we said that a bit at the beginning. There is, you know, in Kale theory, there's this probabilistic perspective, this measure theory, statistic perspective, on the one hand, and on the other hand, this more topological perspective, and it's just the math is actually just very and in philosophy, the earlier papers and books were very much concentrated on topological perspective. I think the main reason being that it's, in a way, simpler and also mathematically much simpler. So the, the measure theoretic one, you just need to understand. It's just um, more difficult from the mathematical point of view. And, um, but not only, I mean, of course, it, in a way, I think one should, of course, study both. I mean, in order to get a, a good understanding about chaos, you should, of course, know there's this one approach, the other approach. But then, as I said, there is just the statistical approach is really interesting because it gets you into all this stuff, traditional philosophical debates and puts, I mean, brings uh, sheds new light on these um, traditional philosophical issues. And I mean, I've mentioned that like determinism, indeterminism, and also really you have, I mean, if you're interested in foundational questions in physics, foundations of statistical mechanics, irreversibility, and things like that. It's also where the measure theoretic perspective. I mean, it's still a big open question. I mean, there's been some work done, and we know already a bit more, but chaos, some hoped and still <coughs> are still hoping, and I mean, there's there was a reason for hoping um, that chaos really helped to clarify the foundations of statistical mechanics. So there's this extra interest from the philosophical, from the foundations, foundations of physics, foundations of statistical mechanics point of view as well. And I mean, as you say, it is tricky, but philosophically speaking, that's that's interesting. <laughs> so I mean, probabilities, this, I mean, the kind of probabilities which are used in dynamical system theory, they're not quite the same as in the other context we philosophers have, have, have had a look at. So just very interesting to see, I mean, how can we best interpret these probabilities? How does this differ from from the other? So it's, it's intricate and complex, but this makes it very interesting. So, I mean, going back to where we started, which was philosophers that find chaos interesting, and you've been using chaos in other work as well, in particular, and I really like the stuff that you've been doing on definitions and mathematics. I mean, this is, so, it's not something we think about very much. I mean, you know, what is a definition? We use them the whole time. You know, definition one, this, that way I can talk about it sensibly, and everybody knows what I mean in the context of this paper, um, for this term. But there's very little thought about what you're doing when you're using a definition, and also, if you like, what baggage you're taking on by accepting definitions. Okay, Because very often, a definition becomes current, and you would be slammed if you don't use it, even though it's a rubbish definition. It's just, at the moment, seen as being <laughs> useful or trendy or I don't know what. Some, I mean, sometimes I get really fed up because people say, you know, you ought to be talking about this. Well, no. You know, <laughs> I'm not in the remotely interested. I think it's a rubbish definition. But but you, you've actually, I mean, and I know it hits in with Lakatosh um, stuff. And Lakatosh actually says that you could do proofs and reputations just by looking at definitions too. But yes. Say something. I mean, I, I, sure. I mean, 
there's this classic work by Lakadosh on proofs and refutations, and um, it's really, I mean, it's a lot about proofs, but it's a bit about definitions. And so I did some work, um, really, which just trying to continue, in a way, the work that Lakadosh did. So first question is really here, you know, the, the question, why definitions? So you might think, what is it? You might think, I mean, philosophers sometimes, when you read about the foundations of mathematics, you get the impression that definitions are just not very interesting. It's really dull. It's just you know, a term refers to something, stipulation, and nothing really to say. Nothing really more of interest to say about it from a philosophical point of view. You know, maybe you can, uh, yeah. But I don't think. I mean, that's actually at all what's going on. I mean, you just have to think. I mean, mathematicians they, of course, don't have an infinite amount of time. So they've only a finite amount of time. Maybe they would like to do <laughs> And so. Although maybe in principle they could all study all possible definitions, you know, just in principle and in practice they have to concentrate on certain definitions. And that's when you don't like to study rubbish definitions. So, and then the question arises, you know, what what is it that makes definitions good or interesting? This is the question Lakatos studied, and the question which I also really I got interested in. So really finding finding out about the reasons mathematicians have for studying certain definitions and whether these reasons in any sense can be regarded as good reasons, you know, or maybe it is to be reasons. <laughs> so so there's really the, there's really an interesting question here. And in, if you study that a bit in detail, I mean what, what you can then you really find um, you can actually come up with different classifications of different kinds of justification of definitions. So one one idea which is just briefly introduced is what Lakadosh um, called proof-generated definitions. So these are definitions which are really, let me say, justified because they are needed to prove a specific theorem. So they're really justified because they're needed to prove a specific theorem. When you first read them, when you first present them to a student, you're just completely puzzled. I mean, the definition looks so, doesn't look intuitive, strange. You will only understand why the definition has that specific shape once you know the theorem, because you'll see that exactly that definition is needed to prove the specific theorem. So you can classify different kinds of justification. And this is um, what I did in my work. And I think that's, I mean, it's interesting not only from a philosophical point of view, of course, it's interesting from a philosophical point of view, that's why I like it, but it's also to some extent interesting from a, like something like a teaching point of view. When I studied mathematics at university, you know, sometimes, depending on the teacher, if it's a good teacher, he'll tell you. But if not, then you just, you know, the definition presented, it looks very weird, you don't understand, it's not at all intuitive, you don't know what to make out of it. And in these cases, if you just provide the, the justification, maybe that it's used in this specific theorem for that specific reason, it needs to take exactly that shape, then you would understand. So, I mean, one of my good mathematics teachers, he was really like that. He said, this is now a definition that's entirely unintuitive, but wait for later, then you'll understand why it has the specific form. And so, um, this is also quite interesting just from, from the teaching point of view, and really to understand what definitions are. And as I said, there's, definitions are not at all an uninteresting topic. I think they're just very, very interesting. They're also, I mean, it's quite controversial. Uh, so, boring anecdote number 23. Um, I was struggling to prove something. I'd managed to get two parts of the theorem done, and there was a third part that I really wanted to get done. I was talking to a colleague, not in Manchester, I should say, um, about this, and he said, well, 
why don't we just define this to be these two bits and not the third bit? And then you've got paper. <laughs> <laughs> so look out for paper generated. <laughs> I should say, no, I, I didn't, it's, but I still have proof. <laughs> So, I mean, this reason wouldn't, I mean, you know, give a reason for this definition. Yeah, it wouldn't be rational, it wouldn't be a good reason. Well, it, yes, it would be that there's a coherent bit of research, but it would feel incomplete. Mm. But anyway, um, yeah, so one of the things in, in that paper also, you used this phrase about looking at the actual practice of mathematics, which I thought was really interesting. So, yes. is that philosophy, is that sociology? What do you, what does it mean? Not, what does it mean? Sociology. when you when not you're sociology. Of course, we don't like that here. So, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. At least, so, uh, no, I mean, it's, you know, actual practice of mathematics in this context really means to do philosophy and conceptual work on the basis of, you know, the, the, the thinking of what mathematicians do. It means you study their papers, you know. Of course, first of all, you study the discipline, but you understand what they're doing. Then you study their papers, you study their correspondence. I mean, some of my colleagues have even, I haven't done it yet. Um, have really just set in into research seminars and just listen to and you know force the mathematician to why are you doing that now and then give a reason for what they are doing. So it's rather like you can compare the philosophy of science, something like Kuhn or Lakatov. What they did was philosophy of science based on the history of science. So just trying to understand um, philosophy of science based on the history of science. In a way a bit similar is can of course do philosophy of math where what you do is based on what you, the practice you find, either history or at present, um, what mathematicians are doing. And that's just one way to do philosophy of math, because there's a lot of philosophy of math who, uh, which is just not like that. You know, I, mean, I don't want to say it's bad, but it's just, it's different. You know, you, of course, in some questions, like about the ontological nature of the number one, not always need you know, this deep um, actual practice-based focus, but at least think that as if nothing against this more abstract philosophy of math, but I think next to this more abstract philosophy of mathematics, also the philosophy of math, which really just tries to understand what mathematicians are doing, and whether it's not so much a sociological aspect, it's really just looking at the reasoning and looking whether this reasoning, you know, what conceptual issues come up, like in definition, what kind of justifications are used, are these good justifications, similar with theorems, what kinds of theorems do they prove? You know, why are these theorems proven rather than that one, um, those ones. So um, it's really to, it's not about the sociology, but it's about the reasoning which goes on in mathematics and whether this reasoning is justified based on the actual practice. Hmm. So should we move on? So five minutes left to yeah, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> so, I mean, in a way, you said a bit something about that already, but maybe you want to, maybe you want to add about that. In your, so of course, as a chaos theory, there has been this hype in the 60s, many 60s, it started, but then 70s, 80s, 90s, all this new work, different disciplines, really, from course, physics to economics, they all got very, very excited about chaos research. And this is, in a way, over now, to some extent chaos research revolution. So the question is, what, what is the future um, of chaos research? And I mean, to bring in um, the, um, one, one of the famous you know, chaos of theologists is David Roel, um, who worked on chaos theory, who was one of the founding fathers of chaos theory. 
And I mean, he said chaos has been extremely successful in physics, biology, uh, physics and meteorology. It has been somewhat successful in biology, and not really successful at all in um, disciplines like finance, um, economics, and so on. Very skeptical about that. So the question is, what, what, what will happen with chaos theory in the future, and maybe also with these royal um, ideas in mind? Um, so will maybe new areas be discovered where chaos theory is applicable? So there are two issues there. One, one is I, chaos theory is really now part of the armory of an applied mathematician. But the extent to which that applied mathematician actually knows that much about chaos is is much less clear. So there's a sense in which part of it now is a methodology which is, is unthought. You apply things that you've read in a book, mm. okay, because that's the sort of thing you're expected to do. Mm. Um, very often that's about numerical simulation. The, I, you saw that the Henel map, it's very, very hard to prove stuff about chaos, particularly about yeah, sure. strange attractions. <clears throat> so it becomes more, if you like, an expectation that it's one of the things that you look for in your model. When you say it doesn't work so well in biology... I mean, uh, Ray no, said that. I mean, no, no, and, and, and there's a certain sense, and that's true, that, that in a lot of biological systems, you're looking for stability. Okay, you're looking for something which has a stability, uh, um, a functionality, which, has, which, which is robust. And you don't want it wandering all over the place. Okay, so, so if you like, the, the issues are different, but a lot of the methodologies are actually exactly the same. So one of the things that's happened a lot in systems biology, for example, which is where you're looking at um, biology on a cellular level and the interactions within a cell, um, is a, a large, well, not a large, but a significant proportion of chaos-trained people have, are now heading up laboratories of systems biology. And they're doing that because they've got a background in dynamic systems, this more general view of dynamics, which puts in a, them in a very strong position to understand the sort of networks that, we were, that I, I was showing you earlier, and to actually do analysis on those networks. So I think, although chaos may not be absolutely germane to all sort of biological processes, um, a lot of the, the methodologies that one uses in the study of chaos do translate across. I think the other area which I signaled um, before where I suspect chaos is going to be very important is neuroscience. I mean, one's trying at the moment to understand very much on the neurological um, level what's going on in the brain or in parts of the brain. And there, again, I think you know, chaos and chaos with noise, as in the financial markets. And just one more thing, Bob May, actually, Sir Robert May now, um, who was one of the early people doing chaos in biology, then became chief scientific advisor to um, the government, has recently been doing some work on um, financial modeling, and in particular the, um, the way that banks transfer debt across each other and how that sort of tumbles and dominoes. And again, the, although the results, you couldn't say that's chaos, but the flavor of modeling is exactly what one would be using in chaos. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of, if you like, transferable skills in chaos um, that may not be just exactly the chaos bit, but is the complexity. So the, the buzzword now is complexity. Paul, I was going to uh, uh, ask a kind of LSE follow-up question from uh, Charlotte's 
question about where, where we're going, and I was going to indeed ask about the financial system. Uh, is this a system like the movement of planets? Is it a system like the weather, or is it just a system of gambling outcomes? Yes. <laughs> Good. Um, all of the above. I, and I, I think one of the things that, if the chaos complexity type of thing is going anywhere, is saying that, that individuals gambling together form a system which is different from an individual gambling. Right. Okay, so this sort of collective, understanding things in terms of collective phenomena is very much one of the, idea, one of the ideas that has come through the dynamical systems way of, of looking at things. So um, whether you consider it as a load of interrelated banks with exposures, whether you consider it as a, a, a lot of interrelated um, traders trying to, to make bets in different directions, then again, the tools that we're using, using, people are using to model these things are very much the sort of natural um, consequences of the 1980s, 1990s research <coughs> in chaos and dynamical systems. But they're bringing in some more sophisticated, well, different, bringing in some different structures on top rather than just continuous um, variables that are moving around. You've got interrelated variables in interesting ways. Okay, thanks both. Now, uh, opportunity for people in the audience. You can, you can ask a question or you could make a contribution if you like. And I'll, I'll pick, pick them out and we'll see how we get on. So we'll start with there and then there. So one at a time now. Thanks. So um, I was just interested on, on the link between chaos and unpredictability. So I guess this is more a question for the philosophy side of it. Of, um, what you'd pinpoint as the kind of value added of chaos in thinking about unpredictability in a kind of philosophical sense? So, as I understand that, as you've described it, I mean, empirically, if you have you know, the drop of ink, it's going to be extremely hard to predict what will happen to that over quite a short period of time. So there's a lot of inherent unpredictability in any kind of practical sense. But presumably, there's nothing new that's inherently unpredictable. It's more that it's the complexity of it. So I mean, is, is there an important um, addition that comes with chaos, which is a deterministic system, albeit one which is, you know, very quickly, one which becomes very difficult to kind of predict and, and pin down. Yes, so I, thanks for the question. So, I mean, one thing, of course, to realize is, you know, when you have a deterministic, a chaotic system is a deterministic system. So, of course, by, because you were asking about something like in principle limitations, you know, just one interpretation of the equation. Of course, if you knew the initial state with just infinite precision, there would be no problem. So deterministic system just evoke the equations. You'll know the outcome. So in this sense, there are chaos. There will never be like uh, in principle limitation because in principle, if you take it to be that I could measure with infinite precision, then I would know the outcome because I would know the exact initial state and it would give me the exact initial outcome. Um, and then to your question, what's what's new? What's added here? So the, the re I mean, what's really I think new with chaos is that for for systems like the planets, of course, you also had only finite measurement precision and practice. So if you have infinite measurement, if you have infinite precision, then it's the same thing again. It's deterministic. You evolve it, you know the outcome. But if it's finite precision, um, you just evolve your finite blob of initial conditions forward. And in these classical deterministic systems, and this, which I mean, these ones which were studied before chaos theory arose. 
what you find is that you know these things don't the, the, the states stay together and this is what people then generalize that if these integrable system planetary systems they are like that the states just of course they can only measure with finite precision but it doesn't really matter because the states anyway stay together and they didn't know that there are other systems where actually this is not the case so um, and this is then what was added by can I also add, add just one thing there? Because I think, from my point of view, one of the things that's been clear is that people haven't really thought about what prediction means. So even if you try to write down what, is it, what does it mean to predict something, the early attempt in the early 1990s, I guess, you know, I'm thinking of Peter Smith, um, was actually writing down things which was equivalent to continuity with respect to initial conditions. So anything that's continuous, including a stochastic process, would have been predictable in that sense because if you start sufficiently close, you stay. You know, if you specify how close you want to be here, there is a closeness back here. So, to get from what is simply continuity to prediction and deciding that those things are different was actually a sort of leap that made you really think about what 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 do you want out of a prediction, and is it more than continuity? Thank you. Okay, and it was, yes, please. Uh, I think my question is kind of slightly different, but I do have something else to say. I mean, you asked about why philosophers are interested in chaos. And I think it might sort of be why people in general are interested in chaos. <coughs> Maybe it has something to do with the name. Because I can imagine <laughs> <laughs> being a, a, a mathematician sitting in a bar in the 1970s, and I meet somebody who I'm quite attracted to, and they ask me what they do. Do I say I'm a dynamical systems theorist, or do I say, I'm the chaos theory. <laughs> 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 and the, the, the main, exactly, uh, but, the, the, but seriously, names are important. And sort of the way in which my question has been asked is that, it's, it, I mean, I was thinking, you know, with, with the ink in the water, you can't predict, you can predict it for a couple of seconds, but not a couple of minutes. With the weather, a couple of days, but not a week. Um, but with, with the planets, then, you're saying that you, you, you can predict it so much that you can even predict the, what would happen to the planets over half a billion years, or a billion years. Um, and then to suggest how you would respond to the suggestion that chaos is simply a quality that we attribute to a system about which we don't have very much information and are therefore unable to predict it. Right. right. I think that, that question about whether it's a limitation on information is a very important one. Mm. Um, so first of all, go back to your question about the planets. What's no, go back to the question about whether you found your wife. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure that's philosophy. <laughs> uh, no. Um. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I think I'm going to say that I'm persistent. So I'm <laughs> oh, by the way, that includes chaos. Uh, but, um, <laughs> no, for the, for the planets, for example, th there are two different questions. If you have two planets, or you have the sun and the planet, then there isn't a lot to say. It is predictable. I mean, in a very, very strong sense. More or less, you can you can solve I mean, you can solve it, and you can you can say the sort you put bounds on where it can be. The question on once you come to a solar system with a number of planets, then it's not doesn't have this sort of very, very simple question. And actually, a huge amount of computational work has been done on doing very, very accurate computational me measurements to see how stable the solar system is. 
I believe that it isn't stable. <laughs> No, I mean, this, this but it takes a long, 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 long time. So, so the information I, point, you were going to say about whether it's about limited information. Yeah, no, so, so I think that was what I was trying to say about um, earlier, about certain types of robustness being important in your model. So should, something like the property of chaos, if it's a, a true at an isolated point in your model, and if you change your model just a little bit or change some of the numbers defining your model in such a bit, would be completely destroyed, that to me wouldn't be a very interesting sort of chaos. So you have to be quite careful about what you're claiming, whether it's for the model or for a class of models. If it's for a class of models, measure comes in again. Because what you tend not to be able to prove is that there is, for all parameters close to the one you're interested in, all systems close to the one you're interested in, there will be chaos. But for a positive measure, positive probability, you will be able to have, have chaos in these models. The other thing is, in what is practically important? Okay, is it practically important that it's chaotic, or that it's got some sort of periodic motion which is so long, such a long period, that you never in practice see it? So there are all sorts, in terms of when you're trying to do applications, you have to be quite focused on what you're actually interested in. And quite often, whether it's chaotic or not is not quite the right question. But whether for sufficiently long, whether you're sufficiently close to a chaotic system that whatever you're going to see is going to be such a long period that it's not going to be an issue in the model. You know, you want it to run for five days. Well, it might have a period of um, 25 million years, and you're interested in five days. Well, 25 million years and five days, there's no contest. I don't care whether it's actually chaotic, I care whether, for the purposes that I'm interested in, I can see enough of those chaotic signatures. Okay, thanks. Uh, up the back, and then one down here. Yeah. All right, so I just have one question about sort of the inverse problem from what you've talked about. So what you've been presupposing is that you've got perfect knowledge of the dynamical laws that generate the system. And then you're saying, what can we predict given a certain measurement error of the current initial but one of the things that's interesting about the examples you gave from finance, a number of examples from biology and, and economics and so on, is that where we actually begin is with noisy time series data from which we are trying to actually reconstruct the underlying differential equations that generated that. Now, if we have reason to believe that, that, that those equations are actually chaotic, and if we believe that the time series data is actually noisy, do we have any chance of being able to work backwards from just these observations to actually identifying the underlying equations to any degree of accuracy that would enable us at some other point in time to make predictions right. even just a day or so? Yeah. So, so I think this thing of separating out what you might call the deterministic <coughs> chaos from the some sort of random, truly random element is, is absolutely central. It's a really interesting question. Um, and I think, so I don't think that we, I don't think we have perfect, and there are some results in that direction, but I think it's a, re, it's a, it's a really important question that hasn't had, it, as it were, enough attention. I don't know, I certainly believe that you can do it, that, that, that providing the noise is not too, providing you have some control over the noise, the, the, the truly noisy bit or some control over 
for example, the network, so you can cut links and see what happens, then you can start to sort of work out how much of this is, is intrinsic noise and how much of it is chaotic. Mm. But this is what I would say. I mean, it, it depends on the specific system. That, and I haven't studied that in detail. Mm. But intuitively, what you would then try to do is to find the conditions where you have the same dynamics but slightly different noise, mm -hmm. and then try to find how robust is this. And I mean, just this is just one um, suggestion of how to deal with that. But just to add about your question. I mean, this question, if I understand it correctly, is really a bit about confirmation. You know, how we can can we confirm that? these specific equations or these set of equations are good ones. Of course, you might think, I mean, of all the talk, you know, there was a lot of emphasis on unpredictability. So you might think, I mean, how can I ever confirm a model you know, or confirm a class of model if there's so much unpredictability? Because usually, of course, how models are confirmed has something to do with predictions. But even though you have unpredictability in chaotic models, I think there are fairly with some good ways of confirming models, which can use, use different strategies. Of course, they don't use long-term predictions because you can't make long-term predictions. But they use short-term predictions. They use things like um, varying the parameters of the systems to see what kind of bifurcation show up and so on. This is how, in practice, people do it. So I think there are, I mean, the, the question of confirmation and case is a very interesting one. But there are ways, even though long-term predictions aren't really possible, of confirming it. Equations in some contexts, yeah. but with the added noise, it gets even more complicated. No, and I think so. One of the problems I've been working on is um, human balance, and there it's really interesting. So, the, the standard so, what happens is people tend to oscillate a bit, okay, they, they move about a bit like this, and the standard models um, are linear equations with noise. Now, those are the standard models because people can do a certain amount of prediction based on that. There are statistical techniques that allow you to do this. And because they can get a good fit, they then believe that that is the right model. And one of the things that we've been trying to show is you can get just as good a fit with a nonlinear model with a little bit of noise. So, so you can actually start saying, you can start then putting these things up in competition and then say, are there effects, ways in experimentally that you can reduce the noise or with human beings, it's actually quite interesting, make them concentrate on the fact that they're wobbling a little bit and see the effect of that and then try to work out whether in the classic models they just add extra layers of, of sort of, it's, it's almost like decacycles, it's, it's sort of circles on circles on circles and whether the nonlinear model, I mean our hope is that the nonlinear model will actually have more explanatory power and so there, it's, a di it's slightly different to the question you were asking it's saying, what are you trying to achieve with the different modeling techniques? Okay, I think we've got a question. Was, when was it? Was it you? Yes, you said. Uh, no, uh, thank you for, um, for, for the lecture. Uh, if it is obvious, I'm sorry about that. Uh, for me, it would be interesting to know if um, all these heavyweight mathematics and chaos theory um, could have been or, or had been applied to, have been applied to um, primal num number distribution. So, so it's, it's a good question, it's not directly, but the, the, the question arises in some dynamical system. So, it's as though, so what, what actually, I mean, dynamical systems is very strange because it almost appears that all bits of mathematics somehow arise as an application or within an application of particular dynamical systems. So, 
the prime number distribution actually is really important when you discretize certain types of irrational rotation. And there's a group actually at Queen Mary in Westfield that have been looking at various properties of these dynamical systems. And the questions that they come up with are exactly prime number distribution questions. So there are parallels there. Uh, another thing is um, Mike Berry at Bristol um, had a really interesting conjecture about a quantum chaos chaotic system and its energy levels being equivalent to the Riemann hypothesis. And so that's, I, mean, I, I honestly don't understand why it works this way, but there seems to be a sense in which dynamical systems simulate almost anything. <laughs> and that includes mathematics. Oh, that's very interesting. Okay, yeah, uh, yes, please. I'm interested in the idea of fractals and how something can be intricate, uh, completely intricate. And I think when I first heard about it, sometimes I describe it as trying to measure the British coastline as yep. 10 to the minus 30. But I was wondering what's the actual application of this, because it seems like a really complicated right. idea. So, so the idea is there are certain sorts of boundaries where <laughs> with a lot of structure. So if you go around with a measuring rod and <coughs> measure it, okay, you get and you measure it with a one meter measuring rod, you get one answer. If you then say, right, I'll use a half meter, and I'll go around with that, you get another answer. You, you work with finer and finer on scale. And you, you, it's as though that when, you, when your measuring stick gets smaller, you're resolving, eventually it starts going to the grains of sand. Okay, so it becomes sort of meaningless in most physical situations. But in a real, true fractal, okay, you could keep doing that forever. Now, in quite a lot of physical experiments, although there is actually a physical barrier below which you cannot go, the idea that you've got a fractal underlying it is very useful. And for, uh, as an example, there are certain, certain ways that um, if you send particles in to stick to each other, and they start forming quite complicated um, crystal, I mean, it's almost crystallization type problems. Um, so they drift in and they attach to wherever they come close to. Those have a fractal structure. And so understanding that fractal structure, even though it's an idealization, like no one's pretending that this structure goes on forever in, in the physics, as a conceptual <coughs> idea, it's actually quite useful. I don't know whether that answers the question, but, but it, it, it's trying to say, look, when you get to a finer and finer scale, scale, you see more and more structure. That means I mean, your 10 to the 39 is the, the, the length of the boundary. Because the boundary, every time you look close, it's got an extra little bit, which you weren't measuring. You were going across that little island, and it's actually gone in and out. So the length, as you get finer and finer measuring scale, the length that you see get, gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But the way that it gets bigger in a sort of uniform fractal is very, very well controlled. And so you can measure, actually, the dimension of that. And that gives you some sense of the complexity of the object you're looking at. Is, is it a finite bounded space? Yes. But you can keep going forever. So finite getting, bounded getting space, space, but, but um, <coughs> arbitrary long, I mean, infinitely long in the limit um, area. Right. I mean, let me just just briefly add to that that you know you, you see lots of books where you you know title tales and fractals and things like that. Just to keep in mind that these, I mean, although there are all these books with title tales and fractals, because I think these ideas evolved or were systematically studied, let's say like that, at around exact roughly the same time, 
I mean, the, the conceptually, they're actually very different. You know, chaos is really about the dynamics of the system, about how things evolve. A fractal is really just whether something is a fractal or not. It's about the set. It's nothing to do with the dynamics. I mean, these concepts are just. So, from a philosophers, we sometimes be philosophers who work on chaos theory often wonder, you know, why are there all these books on chaos and fractals? It's a bit weird, right? And they're always together when there isn't really this great deep intrinsic relationship. Uh -huh. They're both very interesting, but just keep and, in mind. And they do arise naturally. So, they, they were created. Um, well, you probably don't want to know how they're created. But um, <laughs> the, 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 the fractal is a sort of geometric structure. And in dynamics, you naturally create attractors, for example, which would have geometric structures. So that's why you get yes, that connection. Yes. But, but, it, but it's, it's, it's about geometry. Yeah. Yeah. One is about geometry, the other is about that. So you have, can have fractals which, I mean, where there's no case at all. And you've okay, we've got some questions coming Sorry, up. Yeah. Uh, one here and then we'll go there. So here first. Well, I want to sort of <coughs> move the conversation over back to the philosophical side and ask what the extent to which chaos is desirable in the modern world. Does, <laughs> does chaos make it possible for markets to work? Does chaos give us free will? Yeah, if everything was deterministic, would these things function at all? Uh, it's I wonder if there's an opinion we could sort of kick around there. Yeah. I mean, from, so, from a philosopher's science point of view, you would say, what extent is chaos desirable? I mean, from a methodological point of view, you would say, so we study those specific physical, biological, social science phenomena and so on, and we just find whether they are healthy or not. You know, this question to what extent they're desirable is something which I myself don't, I mean, I really don't. Um, I mean, well, if we take the market in um, yeah. banks, for example, you know, if, if they are indeed chaotic, would we attempt to dampen their chaos? For example, sure, through I mean, legislation. Sure, I mean, and, and know, and these questions not only in a way arise in the in the arise <coughs> um, in like in biology, for instance, hard rhythm has something to do with chaos. You know, and then of course you might say, what extent is chaos desirable and hard? There has been some work on that. Actually, that you know, of course, the hard is to some extent a periodic thing, but periodic added with some chaotic motion. This oh. is what some scientists have proposed: periodic motion plus you know an additional. Um, effect which is chaotic. And they actually found, I mean, if all this is true, supposing now that all this is true, that here chaos is actually incredibly desirable because if the heart is beating too regular, it's a very bad sign. Irregular, some irregularity is actually very so desirable. And then you, then you might think of medical intervention like you might yeah. think of so. Of Hang on, Paul, is this for the philosophers? I, I mean, one of the, one of the, one of the <laughs> things that I think um, is that it's the unpredictability part which is far more important for our thinking about the, the characteristic of human behaviour and things like that, the unpredictability of the reaction of another person to what you do is fundamental to our understanding of them as other to you, as somebody yes. you, that you're not and so on. And so I'd be inclined to think that this one, which is a deterministic system, is as far as our thinking about the sorts of things you want to about, less uh, important than the unpredictability point. And, and Dostoevsky gave an example of that in Notes from Underground where uh, he's confronted by sort of scientists who think they're going to um, produce a systematic understanding, scientific understanding of society, which will predict what he's going to do. And he said, well, whatever they predict, I'm just going to do the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you've had a go. You is, it a, is it a related point? It was a follow-up on the notion of free will. Okay, go. Yeah. 
It is interesting to note that if you think of the relation between your individual character and free will, that we think that there's not incompatible with us being free, that a good friend of us who knows our character terribly well can anticipate how we're going to respond to situations. Right? We think that if we actually do have a character that you know, we are moral, we are, have, have commitments to certain principles and ideals, that, that doesn't somehow strip us of our own autonomy and freedom. Okay. And, and that's a case where predictability actually goes quite nicely interwoven with, with the sense of individual freedom. Good. Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah, your question. Um, this is a question on the chaotic equations, like the logistic equation. I was just wondering what defines that equation to be chaotic rather than other iterative equations which aren't chaotic? So what you're looking for is... Um, there, are, there are objects you can define, things like um, Lyapunov exponents, which, are, which give you a sense of how stable the trajectory is. So if you, if you have some sequence, you want to know what happens to nearby sequences. And so there's a way of sort of defining something that looks at how those, how two things either stay close or move apart. And so um, you look at those, you find that they're positive. That tells you there's a, there's a divergence in that. So that's one way. Um, you can prove things like the existence of the measure, the probability measure, that, that together with another branch of mathematics effectively allows you to make quite strong statements about how close to a cup of tea it is, or uh, sorry, ink. Um, you know. So, but what you have to do, it's a case by case um, thing. And the problem is that it can be you know, horribly hard. Okay, so things like the logistic equation we chose with the, with the number four on it actually is very easy to deal with. It's a little trick. But in the main, I'm, you know, people have been looking at this for really quite a long time. It was 1970, late 1970s before anyone started to have a sense of being able to prove lots of chaotic things. Um, you know, so, so that question is actually is really hard to do on a case-by-case um, basis. And you do tend to avoid it. Okay, unless you really, really want to know the answer, okay, you have a really good reason, you, you tend to do it by sticking it on a computer and saying, sort of, right, for the purposes of this modeling exercise, this is chaotic. Or by changing parameters, I can see that even if it's not chaotic, it's part of this sort of chaotic family, chaotic set of behavior which I know and recognize. And so I can say, right, it may not be chaotic, but it's, 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 I understand enough about the sorts of things going on seen as a family that allows me to say that even if it wasn't, it's within that chaotic paradigm, if you like. So. I mean, it, just to add to that, it's so hard. You, I mean, you see that also when you look at statistical mechanics and you know, things, things like gases and systems. You know, um, Portsman already um, at the end of the 19th century put forward conjectures about this system, and we still haven't proven them. We still haven't been able to solve them because just mathematically it's so hard. And the, 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 the halfway house thing was something like 80 pages, which nobody could read. Okay, it was, I mean, you know, it was really hard and long and difficult. And they, you know, in some places, they set up little seminars to, to read these things, and they still had the truck. truck. <laughs> okay, we've got time for another. Yeah, there. Oh, no, it wasn't you, but we'll take you. Go on. I was thinking of 
whether all this relied on, on uh, everything remaining the same. So if you've got planets going around the sun, what happens if one of them disappeared? You know, I'm thinking sort of devil's islands and hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy or something. <laughs> and if you've gotten a, a situation whereby it, there's a sort of a bounded rationality in this, you know, that everything has to remain the same for a deterministic uh, 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 driver, as it were, to, to exist. And uh, I was sort of focusing more on the unpredictability, actually. Right. I mean, did it just say something about if he, I mean, as if my, my planetary system was two planets roving around the sun for good reason, because this is a simple system, this is always predictable, he always things stay the same. But as Paul said, I mean, there has been lots of exciting work, and one of the big names here is Lasca in uh, France, and really about the stability of the solar system, where actually exactly investigated whether it couldn't happen that Mercury just, at some point, just drops off, you know, it's not part of our solar system anymore. He actually found that I mean, Mercury is among those planets um, who are at, at risk to be um, chaotic, not so much other planets like Jupiter and so on. That, but and there's a real question about it. I didn't want to bring it up in my easy, neat introduction because you know, it would have made things much more complicated. But there's a real issue here: whether or not over a longer time it couldn't happen that just suddenly one planet disappears. So it's, it's a real serious scientific possibility. <laughs> I'm going to have to draw it to a close there. It was very interesting that they began with Peter Smith, uh, whose uh, name came up more than once, talking about the infinitely intricate. He also talked about the stubbornly unrevisable. And uh, I think that's, <laughs> that's me on this topic. But um, what, we should, um, what we should do, I'm never, ever going to say this again, is we should make some noise. <laughs>